You're listening to Washington Post Live's weekly conversation series with cultural pioneers and changemakers on race in America. Hello and welcome to another installment of our Race in America series at Washington Post Live. I'm Nicole Dunka, an investigative reporter here at the Washington Post. My guest today says that the easiest way to introduce someone's culture is through their food. Chef Tim Mon now joins us to talk a little bit about his journey with his restaurants and also fighting violence and bias against Asian American Pacific Islander communities uh, through his nonprofit. Thank you so much for joining us, Chef Tim. Thanks a lot for having me today. So let's get started. You recently opened up a, a restaurant called Any Day Now in DC's Navy Yard. Can you tell us a little bit about it and how it's different from other restaurants you've opened? Yeah, we really um, set out to open an all-day restaurant, and um, really we set out to open a restaurant, and uh, like a dinner restaurant, and what happened was that we were like, okay, we need to figure out this all-day component, and instead of, you know, your typical cafe that has all these things, we were like, let's be really good at one thing um and and express everything through this one medium and that one medium became these scallion pancake egg sandwiches um and you know we we spent a good amount of time probably too much time developing the, um the, a single sandwich and um our inspiration being mcdonald's was also like a little bit unorthodox um but then when we started to taste it and we started to have people other people taste it um we knew that we were onto something and when we opened it just kind of exploded to uh, uh, a breakfast restaurant, I, I guess, that had lines out the door and still does to this day on the weekends um, for these guy and pancake egg sandwiches. And so we, it is still, we are on that goal to open that, that dinner portion of the restaurant that happens um, literally next week. So uh, we're pretty excited to finally get to that goal, but we're, we're very happy with what we have so far. That's really exciting. And of course, everyone is loving these scallion pancake breakfast sandwiches. Can you talk a little bit more about why scallion pancakes in particular? Why breakfast in particular? Um, I mean, it really leans into pretty much everything that I've done since the pandemic has been centered around an exploration of being Asian in America and especially with like Lucky Day Drum and dumplings. Um, that's just really everything that I've been doing. Um, on the culinary side and and uh, a lot of my team members um, were really are, are really into the Asian cuisine as well. And so when I mentioned, hey, like this is the one thing that we're gonna be good at, they just took off and, and ran with it. And, um, you know, it's a little bit of a different medium and, and you, you think about it, it's sausage, egg and cheese, but uh, we take some really good care of the ceiling pancakes. So we're, we're really happy with it so far. It's a combination of my favorite dishes, so I'm all over it. Um, but you talked a little bit about Lucky Danger, which a lot of people may know you from. And on that website, it actually says American Chinese by a Chinese American. Can you talk a little bit about what that phrase means to you? Yeah, it's a pretty important tagline, though. It seems very simple, but um, has a lot of depth to it if you think about it. So um, American Chinese food, which is what I would consider different from Chinese food, but probably one of the most popular cuisines in all of America, um, has really uh, been the same ever since my, like 
my entire family has run a restaurant. So like ever since my family has been running restaurants, not much has changed um, in American Chinese food. I would say a lot has, has changed in Chinese food in America, but um, with this particular cuisine. And so that was kind of the mission and the vision when we uh, started Lucky Danger was to um, take the perspective of a professional chef. I'm not I didn't grow up in Chinese kitchens. I didn't grow up in my family's restaurants. I, I was an engineer for a long time. And then, um, but taking, and and so I was French trained because there are really only like French cooking schools um, here. Uh, and so taking the perspective of what I learned as a professional chef in French and American kitchens and um, putting a fresh take on the American Chinese cuisine, um, looking at it from how we source to the technique techniques that we apply to it, even though they're a little bit opposite of French cuisine. Um, and then just like, like kind of taking apart the cuisine and the dishes of the cuisine and putting them back together with the way that we know how to cook. Um, and maybe giving it a look from somebody who grew up Chinese in America um, and applying that to the American Chinese cuisine. So it, it's been a fun exploration so far and for sure not over. There's still a lot of work to be done. How do you feel like what you're doing is challenging the perception that people might have about Chinese cuisine in America? I think American Chinese cuisine started with Chinese dishes that have like, I guess what some people would say, strange flavors. Um, and then those dishes got Americanized. And, and now what we're trying to do is maybe do that same process over again and, and, and take some of the food that I grew up eating, being a Chinese person in America, like I was born in America, I wasn't um, uh, born in China or Taiwan and then came over here. Um, and so uh, I grew up eating a particular style of food that was kind of just like a mixed mash of uh, American food and Chinese food and trying to introduce those dishes slowly um, just like now what we know is like Kung Pao chicken or General Tso's chicken that are ingrained into um, American Chinese cuisine and see if we can introduce what the next Kung Pao or General Tso's chicken is. Yeah, it seems very uniquely Asian American and that's so exciting for me as somebody who's also Asian American. Uh, I do wanna talk a little bit about your nonprofit, Chef Stopping API Hate. I'd love to hear a little bit more about how this idea came about and how you feel like it's evolved since 2021. Yeah, so, you know, back in 2020, when the pandemic hit, um, being a restaurateur, um, it wasn't the greatest time to be in restaurants. So um, many of my concepts and uh, my fellow chefs and restaurateurs concepts had to close. Um, there was really, a, and it was really an interesting time when everybody was trying to figure out how to be a restaurateur in a time where there could be no restaurants. Um, and so we were spending the time, you know, with that word pivoting, we were pivoting left and right to whatever we can do to, for one, just like survive um, as a food business, but also still keep uh, many employees um, employed during a time that um, it wasn't, there weren't many things to do. And so there are many creative solutions, obviously like take home meal kits or, you know, World Central Kitchen was pivotal in putting a lot of restaurants to work to supply food for those that in communities that needed the food um, supplied to them. Um, and then obviously like figuring out pivoting a fine dining restaurant into a takeout restaurant was was very challenging. 
And then the other interesting thing that happened, and I think this happened for a lot of people in a lot of industries, is that you know we slowed down and we started to look at what was important to us um, as it related to us personally, but as it related to um, what we were doing professionally. Um, and that's where like this really this exploration into um, Chinese culture and Chinese food in America started to take hold. But then as we started to see the anti-Asian incidents happen on TV, and especially those closed circuit videos that were really fuzzy of elderly Asian Americans being attacked, um, it started to really hit a nerve. And, and obviously Kevin is a good friend and a fellow chef. And so we would talk every day. It was kind of like, like, okay, um, for one, what do we do with our restaurants? You know, what are you doing? What can, how can we help? Um, and then secondly was, do you see all these things happening? Like, uh, God, it's pretty terrible. Uh, that looks like my mom. That looks like my grandmother. That looks, you know, like my father. Um, and so as that started to escalate our, um, our feelings of responsibility towards it started to escalate. So like that feeling of responsibility of being a community leader, um, like it wasn't like, oh, we should do something. It was like, oh, we have to do something. And so, and you know, our skill set is cooking. So we were trying to figure out, okay, how can we use cooking to fight anti-Asian hate? And, and we realized that we, we sell food for our businesses. Why can't we sell food for those nonprofit organizations on the front line fighting anti-Asian hate? And so that's where it really um, started. And that idea translated into the only thing that we can do in 2021 was um, takeout dinners. And so that's how the series started was a single takeout dinner here in Washington, D.C. And we're all thankful that you were able to give us all that great takeout. And I mean, now the nonprofit works with more than 200 chefs, uh, a lot of them Michelin level. I mean, what was it like seeing this esteemed community really come and rally around this issue that was so important to you and also to API communities? Yeah, that first takeout dinner was um, five pretty uh, prominent Asian American chefs here in DC. Uh, and then really what happened overnight was that we got on the phone, um, and, and started texting and calling just fellow chefs. And a lot of these chefs weren't Asian American. They were just chefs that were in the community that, you know, we consider friends that were just like reaching out to us or re us reaching out to them. And they're like, how can we help? Um, and we are like, you know what, let's, let's just keep going. Why don't we get another five chefs together? It doesn't, they don't have to be Asian American. And, and it just started to, to bloom like that. And so all of a sudden from this one dinner with five chefs became 45 chefs um, here in DC and nine dinners. Um, and a lot of them not mostly not Asian Americans. So we were like, okay, like it felt really good to see other communities come and stand by our community. Um, and of course being, uh, entrepreneurs and restaurateurs, what do you do? You're like, okay, well, we got some, let's do more. So, you know, let's reach out to other cities. So uh, obviously we have a network of chefs in other cities. So we reached out to chefs in many cities, um, uh, not just the ones that we partnered in, uh, New York, San Francisco, and Detroit, but, uh, you know, there are chefs in Denver, there are chefs in uh, New Orleans, there are chefs in Miami. Um, and it was really, you know, we were mobilizing so quickly, this was happening in a matter of 
days, which typically these things take weeks or months to plan. So um, these other cities were, and we had a lot of really good volunteers and, and help in other cities to really mobilize and get the same thing that we're doing in DC and doing in, uh, happening in other cities. And what was the greatest about that was um, we, you know, we, we took a portion of, of the proceeds and donated them to national um, anti-Asian hate nonprofits like Stop AAPI Hate, but also we were like, take the rest of the proceeds and donate it into nonprofits directly in your community. Um, and so that was, that was really great to see how, how many people rallied around that. Yeah, I'd love to talk more about the storefront emergency fund, which is something that was started up through this. Can you tell us how it's helping people within the community? Yeah, really, we realize, and this happens to actually um, like our restaurants as well, and, and you saw it a lot where um, Asian American businesses, not just restaurants, were getting <clears throat> vandalized and really just because they were Asian, which is um, kind of disheartening that we're in 2020. Three and and that's still happening, and so really that was one of the things because we know as restaurateurs how hard it is when something like that happens. Just say a simple window is broken. Um, when that happens, you know we have to go through insurance. It's not always there's always a deductible. There's always you know hoops that you have to jump through to get your store back to what it was, and so really. Um, we established that fund to try and bridge that gap. Um, and so to, and to get that business back up and running as soon as possible. And so really just using our experiences from what we have like, gone through and, and hopefully being able to help in that way that we know that they need help in. Wow, that's a great resource. And in the past, you've actually talked about how your mother, you know, has some different thoughts on responding to anti-API hate. You know, you've said that she comes from a generation that says, you should put your head down, don't speak up, don't make trouble. Something that I think a lot of Asian American Pacific Islander uh, immigrants and their children might, you know, argue or talk about. Can you talk a little bit about that generational divide and how you see it playing out in communities? Yeah, it's it's still an argument that rages to this day, um, and I know um, a lot of Asian Americans in my generation probably experience the same thing, and and it's it's not without argument from from my parents' side. I mean, they they grew up in a time where you know it was probably truly life or death. Um, not to say that it's not now, but. Uh, you know, we can't discount the experiences that they went through as pioneers to come into a country where they didn't speak the language or didn't look like anybody else. And especially my family landing in Arkansas in the 70s of all places, um, for sure they experienced things that were, were very difficult. And so for the safety of themselves and their children was, you know, to avoid trouble and, um, and, for our generation and like what we look at now, or let me back up and just give you kind of like the example of the generation divide in my personal experience was when the January 6th um, incidents were happening, Lucky Danger pop-up was four blocks away from the Capitol. And so all I heard were sirens and, and, and trying to keep up with what was going on. And we had a, a sold out um, set of to-go meals going that night. Um, and I'm on a family group chat and my mom is saying, 
close the restaurant, return everybody's money, get out of DC as soon as possible. If you run any run into anybody, hide your face, don't let them see that you're Asian so you don't get hurt and, and get out back to Virginia. And I understood that, right? Like the, the important thing is the safety. Um, whereas my sister, who is two years older than me, on that same text thread was, no, screw that. Like take off your mask, show them your face. Like now's the time to stand up and, and, and fight. Um, and so, you know, I was caught in between that conversation, but um, it really shows the, um, the, just the gap that's between us. And it's not that my, my parents um, don't believe in what we're doing because they, they understand that what we do now and what we fight for now sets the stage for our, my children and their grandchildren to not have to deal with what we've dealt, dealt with. And, it, you know, it's still not true. Like my children still deal with biases that they, sh they shouldn't at this time, but it just makes the fight that much more important. Wow, that's a really powerful story. And I'd love to get to your upbringing in Arkansas soon, but I also want to talk a little bit about a letter to your parents that was um, on the menu of your former restaurant, American Sun. And I wanna read part of it here. Um, it says, you taught us a language you did not know, fed us food you could not cook, and immersed us in a culture you did not understand. And with that, we became American, though we looked worlds apart. I know you would have introduced us to other Chinese people as my American son to explain why I couldn't speak Chinese, why I didn't know our culture, or why I didn't like our food. But I am proud of who you have allowed me to become. Can you unpack this for me? It's very beautiful. Who do you feel like you have become? Um, well, the name of that restaurant was American Sun, and, and, and really from that story, um, my mom introduced me to other Chinese people as my American son. Um, and again, when I, I told the story to the founder of Eaton, um, the hotel that that restaurant was in, you know, she said, it doesn't matter what you do in that restaurant. That is the name of the restaurant. Um, and that is the narrative that we, we, we run with. Um, and it, it's funny. It's just like, they've, you know, I don't speak Chinese. I don't, I didn't know much about the culture. I didn't know much about my family's history. And it was really because, you know, in Arkansas, like the more that they pushed us towards being quote unquote American, just like the food, right? Like we became Americanized. Um, with that, if we fit in, um, we know the culture, we don't have accents, you know, we don't smell like garlic when we get to school, which was like a real thing, um, that we wouldn't have rocks thrown at us. Um, on the way to school, but we still had rocks thrown at us every day on the way to school. Um, but with that, like I lost my culture. And um, I think now is it's really paying homage and, and um, a testament to the strength of my parents, whether they did that intentionally or not, to really give us the best chance for success. Um, and, and now it's, you know, we're going in the other direction where it's like, okay, like, let me, like recapture the culture, let me stand up for the culture because it is something that's slowly eroding away in America. Um, and so we wanna make sure that uh, we pay respect to that. Wow, that's, uh, that's really powerful. I mean, your family immigrated from Taiwan to Arkansas, as you said, and had a Chinese restaurant. And then at 30, you left a career of, as being an engineer, an immigrant parent's dream, and went into 
uh, into the culinary industry. What was that like explaining that to your parents and, you know, how do they feel about it now? Yeah, it, it wasn't easy, still not easy to this day, um, despite quote unquote uh, perceived success. But um, yeah, my my parents and my parents' entire generation came to America and worked as hard as they could in industries or whatever job that they could find um, to chase their American dream, which was uh, work hard, save money, put our kids through American university. <laughs> and have them be successful in America, become lawyer, doctor, engineer, um, uh, or whatever profession. Uh, I just happened to become an engineer and uh, the American dream was complete for my parents. They were, you know, that's what they worked so hard for. And um, when I told them that I was going to open a restaurant uh, in the middle of my successful engineer career, uh, I now look back on it and I understand it's a, you know, a slap in the face to their dream, right? Just like my dreams to open a restaurant, um, or was to open a restaurant. And so, uh, you know, to go from what can be stable, um, to an industry, an industry that is notoriously and historically very unstable, um, was very hard for them, uh, which probably made me work that much harder to, to become successful in this industry. But, um, yeah, uh, chasing two different dreams on the complete polar opposite sides, uh, but it's been it's been great. They were, despite them objecting to me opening a restaurant, they were there on day one helping me um, open a restaurant. That's amazing. And earlier, you were talking a little bit about the bias you felt in Arkansas growing up. Um, what was that like seeing, you know, incidents of anti API violence now as an adult? Um, and how did that really connect with you in terms of making you think about your earlier experiences? Yeah, I always say that those experiences in Arkansas really um, formed who I am or how I experience being Asian in America now because I experienced it. And now seeing it um, really produces a visceral reaction in, in me, probably because of, you know, the trauma that was associated with something like that. And, and you know, the incidents like, you know, walking to school and I still remember, I don't remember much about um, Arkansas, um, just very, uh, some significant moments and some moments that don't seem significant, but I remember that tunnel that me and my sister, this is again, back in the seventies, we just walked to school. And I remember I was having to walk to school because my parents would have to go to work early. So we walked to school and we went through this tunnel and the other side of the tunnel always sat kids that would throw rocks at us. Um, or uh, like my sister and I, um, our bedroom faced the street. That's just happened to be the configuration of the house. And, you know, one night a brick came through the window. And I didn't even know it was a brick. I just heard glass crashing, froze, scared out of our mind. No, no idea what time it was. And my parents woke up to us still in that state and, and discovering a brick came through the window and not knowing until much later that the reason that a brick was thrown through our window was because of the way we looked. Um, and so, yeah, it was when I now think back that I had gone through those experiences, when I see that happen, um, to other people and other forms of, of Asian hate uh, just produces that visceral reaction that probably is what drives us to continue the work that we're doing now. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I mean, you've said in the past many times that sharing your culture 
as through food. I mean, when did that start for you as somebody who know, you know, did go through that bias and grew up knowing that there were people who were not open to those cultures? When did you start showing people your culture through your food? Yeah. Um, so again, I went to French cooking school and so that's all I knew. I didn't, I didn't, cook. I didn't grow up in the restaurants. I didn't, you know, sit by my grandfather and, and cook with him, which, uh, which I now probably regret a little bit. Um, but so when I got into restaurants and started cooking again, like after being an engineer, all I knew was what I was taught. And so I was cooking that way for, I guess the first like 10 to 12 years of my career. And, um, but I would always pull in the influence of how I was grown up. So I'd always throw in like a Chinese ingredient or a Chinese accent and, or like give a perspective um, to French or American food uh, with like a Chinese accent. And it wasn't until um, really right before the pandemic when um, my family had an exhibit go up in the Smithsonian American History Museum that started to be like, why can't I do that food um, at this level? And so that is really what just like sent us, um, sent me on this exploration of that. And that's why you see that everything that pretty much happened after um, 2019, everything that I did with food was always around Chinese food or Asian American food. Um, and really because it's okay, like now the platform that I have, why can't it be um, Asian food or Chinese food? And so that that's really the path that, like I, this is not that far that long ago we're still real time like exploring this and, and i hope we go deeper with it to, to bring more of the culture because the, the culture is expressed through food first so uh, i hope that continues you've said in the past that the women in your family are the gatekeepers to the food and your family history can you talk a little bit more about that you were just saying it in the last question but that connection between food and family and culture <sighs> Yeah, food, family, and culture for sure. And again, the introduction to someone else's culture is typically through food first. Um, and yeah, it's it's always seemed to be um, the women. So it was my grandmother was really held all the family stories. Um, and I, I remember we would sit around and, um, you know, make pot stickers every Sunday um, in New York. Uh, and they would just sit around and tell family stories. And, you know, then I remember my mom became that steward of all the family stories and now continues to tell them to us now. And so we're trying to really absorb as much as we can, um, just because there's so much family history, some of it good and obviously some of it bad, but it's it's all stuff that we need to take in. But um, And a lot of it actually centers on food and centers around the restaurants, not, not just my restaurants, but um, my, my parents' restaurant, my uncle's restaurant. Um, and I love that. And it's really still a, a good way for the family to connect. And you've opened and closed a few restaurants over the years. I mean, what has that process taught you? You know, you've talked about how it isn't the most stable of industries, but what have you learned through this whole journey? Yeah, it's really a lot of resilience. So I think about, you know, even the stories of, of growing up in Arkansas, right? It's taught me a, a different level of resilience. Um, and for sure, the restaurant industry has taught me a level of 
um, resilience and being able to have challenges like come up every day um, and show me a way to like handle the challenges uh, calmly, sometimes calmly, um, uh, but a way to be able to be like, okay, like I can take in anything that comes at us and, and turn it into something good or, or use it to learn. And, you know, I always say, I don't trust too many people who haven't failed, um, because failure just teaches us so much. And so, you know, in the moment, I'm not thankful for the failures when they're failing, but uh, when I look back on them, the failures have really set me up for work. I'm sure we have a lot of foodies who are tuning in. Who are some of your personal inspirations uh, in terms of chefs and restaurants that you've lo really looked toward while you were building your own restaurants? Um, yeah, for sure. It's changed a lot over time. Um, I, I think I, I listened to Sean Sherman on this and him talking about he came from a time where cookbooks were the inspiration. So I, I come from a similar time period where um, my connection to chefs were through their cookbooks. And so I, I certainly have, have over the years looked up uh, upon a lot of chefs like Thomas Keller and, and people like that. Over time, uh, well, one of the first Chinese cookbooks that I ever got, and this was, I don't know, maybe a, a decade ago, um, was Grace Young's first cookbook. And I'm sorry, I'm like blanking on the name of it right now. Um, and I use that as a reference because it, it, for one, had such beautiful recipes that were so close to like how I grew up eating, but then also telling the story of why the food was that way. Um, and I, I just, I referenced that book for many, many years to the point that like, I, I think it does have like all kinds of soy sauce stains and stuff like that on it. Um, but then um, just several years ago, got to meet Grace Young and uh, discover the work that she's been doing for the Asian American community as well. So um, for sure has always been an inspiration through a cookbook, but now um, been an inspiration in real life and, and really work hard to um, support her work with like the Support Chinatown's campaign, just because it's such an important piece of our culture through food. Great. And as we close, I want to quote a post that you shared on Instagram. It said, we believe that experiencing amazing food has the ability to transport, evoke, reminisce, or introduce you to something new entirely. I mean, what effect does food have on you? I, I think food just really allows somebody to, to cross the bridge with the path of least resistance sometimes because everybody shares passion over food and it's just something that we we do every day and um and so i really appreciate like how it could for one bring people together to the table who probably would not get together and, and share common passions over something like food but also um it allows you to really start the conversation about that other person's culture and it allows you to learn something that you may not have learned or asked about um, through any other way so it's just really something that i think you know um like on the on the back burner it's something that we really really need to appreciate a little bit more and i hope that's happening as we talk and for anyone who hasn't been to one of your restaurants what must they absolutely try 
um, for sure this guy in pancake egg sandwich right now, if you can make it here in person in DC, but if, uh, if you're not here in DC, certainly, um, Lao Ban dumplings, the, the dumplings that are in grocery stores are, um, all over the United States. So you can find them in uh, a lot of grocery stores, 2000 grocery stores across the U S and hopefully County. Great. Well, that is all the time we have today. Thank you so much, Chef Tim Ma. This has been such a wonderful conversation. And I really appreciate you being here with me. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with the series, subscribe to Washington Post Live's Race in America, an Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen.